Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Science Yale Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Marcel Gerong, co-founder and CEO of Cited, to talk about detecting gastrointestinal cancer. Marcel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather, for having me. Marcel, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Cited? Yeah, sure. So I started out, I would say, as a fairly broad generalist scientist with an undergrad in material sciences, so not very healthcare related, but via the medical physics route, got into medical imaging during my master's and then brought another passion together with the work I've done in academia until then, which was computer science. So until then, I always looked at problems in my academic background from a very scientific perspective. I focused on a lot of physics-related science in the context of medical imaging, but from my teenage years, I was always very passionate about computer science and, and tinkered around with programming Oh, I think built my whole first homepage around the age of 14 and always had some kind of passion and enthusiasm around that, but never really figured out how to bring those two worlds together Yeah, for, for academic purposes. I think bioinformatics existed at that time already, but because I always was so interested in science and, and basic natural science during, during school, I, I never really made the leap in the early days to bring the two worlds together. But then I came to Cambridge in 2017, started a PhD here working on on machine learning applications on different types of medical imaging. And that ranged from anatomical imaging, so MRI, CT, all the way over to digital pathology, and particularly doubled down on the digital pathology element in that PhD and started working on cytology samples from the upper GI tract to find early precursor conditions to esophageal cancer, which is one of the most one of the most lethal cancers there is in the Western world. And it was quite interesting because I think very early on in my PhD, I was looking at I was looking at fairly broad problems on applying machine learning on, on medical images. And some of those were also quite technical. But then I think we're going to get to that maybe a bit later. There's always this big question on, it's not really a question of do you find the best algorithm possible, but also do you find the best application area in which you can solve a particular problem with an approach? That's always sort of the, I think, dissonance between trying to solve certain technical questions, but also trying to solve a relevant clinical problem. And in the early days of my PhD, I actually met one of the her people that became a co-founder of Cited at the end, who is Rebecca Fitzgerald. She's a professor for cancer prevention in Cambridge. And she's been working on, on cytology samples using a, a collected using a capsule sponge from the upper GI tract to find all cells, all types of cellular abnormalities. And as you can imagine, there's just the maturity of that technology at the time really gave a very, very open platform and a springboard to build a company in that space working on different types of computer vision applications on cytology data. So this was a slightly long-winded way of how I got from very broad natural science into, into starting a company in that space. But at the time, the next step was always an obvious one. Maybe in hindsight, it, it seems a bit like making a couple of 90 degrees turn along the way. So what does CIDA do and, and why is this important for cancer detection? So we're working on one very particular platform, which uses minimally invasive cell collection of the upper GI tract using an adjustable capsule, and then taking the cells which are collected using that capsule and applying different types of biomarkers on the tissue collected. 
And our primary application right now is for the diagnosis or using this technology for the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. So Barrett's is a precursor condition of esophageal cancer and has a population prevalence in the Western world of around one to one and a half percent. So it's a pretty high prevalence disease and particularly in patients that are suffering from long-term heartburn and reflux symptoms. And unlike in the lower GI tract, where with fit testing and colonoscopies, we have a very clear pathway how people are getting into the intervention of endoscopy. There's a gap here for the upper GI tract because there's no thing like a fit test for the upper GI tract. You're either being considered for an endoscopy, which is, I think, as we all know, fairly invasive and, and resource intensive, but also pretty unfriendly for a patient and taking out quite a bit of time for a patient's life, not only on the day which the procedure is performed, but also the mental anxiety, which is built around a procedure like this, which has that degree of invasiveness. And so what we have been doing basically sits in the care pathway just before that. So patients which are suffering from long-term heartburn or reflux symptoms, which I think just in the US are around 30 million individuals, so quite a substantial number, you can imagine that all of those 30 million people, you can't subject all of them to an endoscopy because we just simply don't have the healthcare system which is built for that purpose. So what we're doing is basically offering that first stage to look after these patients that we won't miss the ones which have any early precancerous disease or then already have early cancer or potentially even advanced esophageal cancer, which is, as I mentioned earlier, one of the one of the cancers with the highest mortality in the Western world. So all of the things we do basically are thinking about how do we give patients less invasive, more patient-friendly, and also cost-effective and value-based entry points into the upper GI care pathway for patients that are at risk of developing cancer. That's a core part of what we do. We're also doing quite some exciting work in the inflammatory diseases space currently, but that's that's more in the pipeline and one that is, I think, going to come off the course of this year and, and next year, certainly. And what role does machine learning play in your technology? How does it help you detect cancer from these upper GI samples? Yeah, so we, we started on addressing that question right, I think, in the early days when I was still in my PhD, thinking about the type of tissue we're collecting and the way how that is being processed. There's quite a lot of molecular, so liquid type of work we're doing right now in these samples, but in its conventional way, the assay is performed by using the cells and treating them like a histology, cytopathology sample. So it's not like a cytology smear. So it, they actually appear slightly different under the microscope or under the scanner because the cells are pre-processed to form a cohesive clot. But one of the things we have been able to, to demonstrate quite successfully is how you can use different types of computer vision approaches to highlight the relevant areas of the relevant cells for pathologists to make a faster and more accurate diagnosis. And I think as we all as we all know, and I think particularly the listeners of that podcast, there's always this challenge of how much autonomy does an, does an algorithm provide? Is it something that just draws a green box around an area that should be highlighted where the pathologist should focus their focus their vision on? Is it something that already precomposes a report to some extent and then can be error checked by a pathologist? Or is it in its third stage or third class, a fully autonomous system? We have demonstrated the feasibility of, let's for this purpose, call it a class two system. So something that can certainly generate reports for a majority of all samples without missing any disease, obviously at risk of overcalling it slightly. So it always needs a pathologist to double check it. But more recently, we have started to use computer vision and ML technologies on these images to become better in discovering new biomarkers for indications which we're currently, which we're currently working on. So not necessarily Barrett's in itself, 
but also looking at morphology, looking at the presence of other cell types, which a pathologist wouldn't really look for because they have a very biased eye to, in our case, look for Barrett's esophagus. So we now have this massive real-world biobank and data bank of images, which we're using for that purpose and have started to also go beyond using computer vision technologies and how we can interrogate the data. So it's it's pretty exciting times and a very rich, particularly real-world data set we, we're able to work on. So is this based off of supervised machine learning algorithms? And if so, how do you annotate your data in order to be able to train and, and validate them? Yeah, it's certainly, so we are, I think we're using technologies across the spectrum now. We have done some very interesting work with Microsoft over the last year on unsupervised approaches to, to solve similar problems than the ones we're looking at. But practically, we've started, you know, as you just mentioned already, practically, we've started with supervised approaches. And one of the ways, one of the things we, ch- we, we thought was pretty challenging in the beginning, and I think it took us quite a while to figure that out, is, as, as you pointed out, how do we annotate that data, and particularly for cytology data, which probably has some additional complexity in there, opposed to a basic biopsy or, or any other histology data. One of the things we have been able to achieve is we've built a similar type of model for pre-screening as people have seen with cervical cancer smearing, cervical cancer smear. So we basically have non-pathologists, but here in the UK, you call them you call them cytoscreeners, which we have been able to leverage for making annotations on some of the real-world data as we go along. And those annotations are then being confirmed by pathologists, which in our case overcomes one of the, one of the main bottlenecks, which is also the cost implications of using, using full-time pathologists for these purposes. So we're essentially leveraging the, the best of both worlds. We are, we're working with cytoscreeners, which we also have on, on our staff to generate the initial annotations and then have someone who, who looks at it and then reclassifies if necessary. But overall, I think our reclassification rates for these annotations are pretty low and pathologists can usually do that in a very expedited way and, and pretty swiftly confirm the annotations which have been put on by other members of the team who are specifically trained on this type of sample. What other kinds of challenges do you encounter in working with cytology images and with training machine learning algorithms based on them? I think generally on cytology images, and we played around with this in the past, because we don't use conventional cytology images, the Z dimension is not as important for us because we clot the cells and then we we treat it as a histology sample. So we make a few micron sections, which takes the Z dimension essentially almost out of the equation. So for us, the biggest challenge with cytology images is has been overcome by the way how the sample is being pre-processed, which is also the way how we've done it in in the clinical trials for a long period of time now. I think the other one is something which is, I don't think, often overlooked, but with histology images, we always can assume that there's some kind of spatial dependency of the area that is next to the one you're currently looking at, because in tissue architecture, it's inevitable that there's some kind of relationship between the lower layers, let's say, of a certain epithelium and the upper layers of a certain certain epithelium but that spatial relationship is completely taken away in also in our case because we're obviously scraping cells from the upper gi tract and then they're being processed and and mixed up in the way so i think it's quite challenging for pathologists but also for people that work with them from a technical perspective to get used to how the sample is composed or what's the composition of the sample particularly because it slightly appears to look like a biopsy, but at the same time, neighboring cells in those samples might have no spatial relationship with one another where they originally came from. So they, they're not ones, they're not two cells which were side by side in the esophagus. They just happen to be side by side because of the way that was processed. So it's pretty important, I think, when annotations are being made that just because you see something in one 
one area doesn't mean you can find the same tissue again in a completely different corner of the sample again. As I said, just because there's no spatial dependency between any individual area of the image. So really, you focus on the local cell morphology and ignore any spatial relationships that you exactly would in histopathology, but here they would confuse the model if you tried to model that. Exactly, particularly if you do any kind of microenvironment related work, if you would want to look at immune cell infiltration. I mean, the chance that an immune cell, which you're seeing in the neighborhood of the cell you're currently interested in, and that there's any relationship or any reason why that immune cell is in that place, and you pointed it out already, is is uncertain because that immune cell might have just been mixed in the sample and it landed there doing embedding. Machine learning is advancing quite rapidly right now. There are new advancements hitting the headlines more frequently than ever before. Are there any new developments in computer vision or AI more broadly that you're particularly excited about and perhaps could see a potential use case for cited? Yeah, thinking about this question, I think I should come up with a way how to avoid the the word large language model, but I probably won't get around <laughs> won't get around doing that. I mean, like everyone else, we are fairly actively monitoring what's going on in that space, and maybe also have been trying to to keep out of the hype cycle at least for now, mostly in relationship to the fact that the maturity stage we have currently as a company, there's quite a few distinct things for us to do in the pipeline ahead of us. So it would be pretty easy to get sidetracked by something that might not actually solve a proper unmet clinical need at the end of the day and, and actually then just causes more, more problems than it will solve in the near or midterm future. So one of the things we are pretty interested in, and there's some cool stuff in the pipeline, also with some of the big players in that space where we're having a collaboration, is on, on understanding how we can use omics data more generally and figure out a way to interrogate that using natural language, overcoming some of the some of the more conventional analysis problems in this type of data. I think there's quite a long way to go there because we have seen some, some excellent progress on generating natural language in itself based on prompts that are natural language. But I think one of the things that will be very interesting for our space is when do we get to a degree of multimodality where we can put in orthogonal data types on one end and then we have almost without knowing the actual mapping function that's going on in the network or in the architecture itself and we can then use some natural language to basically instruct it how to analyze that data and get something out that's in a different sort of modality on the output side of the of the network architecture of the architecture itself so we are working on it as i said i try to avoid saying anything about natural language processing i think it's impossible to do that these days i think potential use cases to your question i mean there's almost an unlimited number of those use cases that properly focus on in our case building better diagnostics to either get patient or catch patients very early in their disease development or get them onto the right treatment pathway i would say in the pipeline making sure that they properly address a clinical need is i think top priority number one for us so i think we're going to sit on that for a bit longer and observe what's happening before we really try to to confuse ourselves and to distract ourselves with too many too many tangents or or sidetracks you're definitely right that there's a lot going on there and uh, you know the multimodal space in particular i think it it needs to evolve a bit more before it can really affect the medical space because it's they're still trying to figure it out in the language and images and different speech, different forms of data there. When you come into the medical space, generally there's less data to train on. And so you have to figure out exactly how it's going to work here and make sure that it can be robust and all those important questions. So yeah, exactly. So hiring for machine learning can be quite challenging due to the high demand for professionals in this field. What approaches to recruiting and onboarding have been most successful for your team? 
So we have the great geographic, I think, location that we're headquartered in Cambridge in the UK, where you know there's a there's a very, few very very strong universities either next door or or down the road essentially. And for us, that has really helped being embedded in the in the ecosystem here. When we look for bioinformatics talent, there's there's a couple of world leading institutes within a 30 minutes commute from here, which always has interested graduate students or postgrad students that are looking to make the jump into into industry. And I think we have not really struggled that much with with technical roles here in Cambridge, but probably also because we're slightly sheltered and isolated from from some of the from some of the macro headwinds when it comes to recruitment challenges and what happened to tech in a broader sense, but also a lot of biotech biotech companies. That being said, we and not sidetracking the question too much. We you know we struggle to hire in, in different areas. You know, so sort of like scientists for us in the lab is always a is always a big shortage. Tech, as I said, is something which we are quite fortunate with here in the here in the UK, particularly in the sort of Cambridge, Oxford, uh, London ecosystem where. You know, there's 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 always companies locally, and there's always a big supply. <laughs> I mean, a big supply of candidates basically coming out of academia that are looking to make the jump, which are pretty eager to explore and often want to stay locally before trying to really maybe go for another role, which which forces them to relocate. So so yeah, we saw some challenges, but maybe not in the areas where most people would have typically expected them. That's good to hear. It's great to be near a, a big university and have that steady stream of candidates. So for the machine learning candidates that you do bring on, have they worked with medical data before or is there a learning curve and you have to get them onboarded and adapted to that type of data? So we always try to to find the perfect mix of background in a candidate and perfect mix without anyone trying to, to jump on my answer here is not 10 years of experience in bioinformatics and has worked with all sorts of omics data between genomics and proteomics and has done x y and z so i think one of the things which is almost sufficient for us to to be convinced that candidates are able to excel is during the interview stage see whether they have an inclination and a passion to pick up some of the concepts around the data we're working with pretty quickly and when that's a given there's very little questions we need to ask to make sure that we get an understanding for whether this individual candidate then gets up to speed really quickly. You know, there's, there's different sort of challenges or, or not really coding challenges, but different interview challenges we're giving to candidates when we're hiring for this role. And so far, I think that has been pretty successful. I think you, you're, you're hinting at one other point there, which is what, if, what happens if those candidates are recruited into a role at the end um, and how they're being onboarded. I think sometimes it's pretty challenging for us to do that in the most streamlined way possible, mostly because the company spans such a verticality of the technology we're working with. As I, as I said, from sort of basic R&D over to device development to running a lab and doing all of that in a commercial environment can be pretty overwhelming when you join initially. So we've been trying to develop materials, internal workshops and getting up to speed like seminars and, and onboarding days for, for new joiners. I think we run them once every month to overcome that as much as possible and to focus their attention on the things that they actually need to know because it's otherwise so easy to get sidetracked in the beginning. But I think in our case, a mixture between sort of letting them immerse themselves, which obviously requires the, the basic character trait of them being curious and, and passionate about that the new thing they're just getting into, together with some pretty directed education about, you know, here are, here are seven papers you should certainly know the exact summary for and 
here's a code repository, which you should better spend a bit of time on and, and look at some of the examples in there to really get up to speed quickly. So I think a synthesis of those different approaches is what we use. And it also varies across the different roles. So whether someone's more in a research role, someone is more in an engineering based role. But I think we have developed a pretty good spectrum to make sure that people land in the right place and, and then can organically evolve from there. One of the key parts that you mentioned there is that when you're screening candidates, you have a good set of questions or evaluations so that you can tell whether they, that person can adapt to the domain-specific nature of this problem and be able to, to work with your team. It, totally. And, and I'm personally a big ambassador of giving the specialized generalist an opportunity for these types of for these types of roles, particularly when it's in a very early stage of a company, because the more ability the candidates have to horizontally integrate different types of knowledge from across the company or across the, the technology or the sector, the better. You know, I think when company gets to several hundred employees, at some point there's an inevitable need to specialize. So the candidate profile starts to slightly shift and you probably want to hire more specialists or generalists at some point. But I'm always eager and at the same point slightly anxious about when that point will come for us in the future because I think it will mean quite a bit of a change in mindset of what character you would be looking for at that point in time. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? I think it speaks to it speaks to the point um, you raised you raised earlier on sort of new developments in computer vision and what we or I am excited about and potential use cases as a result of those. I'm generally very careful or cautious about jumping on sort of sledgehammer approaches to most problems. And we have seen a lot of them happening for us as a company that, you know, produces all sorts of different data and different corners of the business and tries to find some kind of analytics or, or data science driven approach to get more insight into that data. Having grown up as a scientist and having gone through a PhD, I'm always reminding myself of first principles of how to solve certain types of problems. So advice, I'm not sure whether that's advice or whether it's a word of caution. I think particularly in the world we're in right now, solving like building solutions that you know are looking for their prop or looking for problems, I think always is a is a minefield. And we might actually enter into a new era of this problem in healthcare, which we're not even not even yet aware of. I think the amounts of companies working on natural language model and natural language processing and large language models in healthcare are is probably the numbers growing quicker than ever before. And I assume by the week. So I think for everyone that's probably, you know, in, in companies that are a bit more established than, than so a bit more established like we are, I think it's just making sure that when when people want to adopt these types of technologies or when they want to consider any type of AI or ML approaches for for trying to you know, maybe give their business model a bit of an edge over a competitor. I think going very deep into the problem and understanding what the actual solution to it should be, can be, and in a happy large language model world would be is pretty important. It's, it's too easy to get carried away by sort of flashy solutions for problems in a space like healthcare where we know that adoption is going to take a long time. So the adoption of those technologies will will outlast the hype cycle and whatever the next generation in that particular cycle of large language models is going to be. Whether that's multimodality, whether those are other approaches, is written in the stars for now. Oh, well, maybe actually not, but it's something which is a few years down the road now. That's sort of the hybrid between advice and word of caution. I would I would have it's certainly the the advice I give myself if that is of any help because I found myself in a position too many times where getting carried away is 
it just happens so easily, particularly when we follow the various news outlets in the world that, that overwhelm us with new exciting ideas and functions of that technology and making sure that we're sort of finding some degree of homeostasis in there is pretty important, particularly as entrepreneurs, because we all wake up with <laughs> with the intent of building new things and breaking things. But that's not always the best way, I think, how to approach certain problems in, in healthcare. And there's plenty of AI powered companies in our space who I think have burnt their fingers and maybe hands on that in the past. So, so yeah, I think that's, those are my words on, on this. I hope there's some, some value married in them. There definitely is some, some good value in there. And finally, where do you see the impact of Cited in three to five years? Yeah. So one of the things we have been starting to really embrace is understanding how the data we have now generated in the real world can be used to push our technology into new indications, you know, moving to the next generation of the technology, which should be more, which should be more scalable. And I think in three to five years, we have been seeing so many exciting developments, also from a clinical guidelines perspective in the upper GI space over the last few years. That you know, I'm pretty confident that in Europe we will be we will be the biggest player in the GI early cancer detection space, and we'll be amongst the top three in the US because this is a space which is still pretty nascent, and there's a very very small number of companies that are competing in this space. But we already know of quite a few people that are eager to enter this space at the same time. So for us, it's all about finding the right balance between our sort of medical device platform for medical invasive collection and making sure that we strategically work on new biomarkers that make us go beyond detecting barrett's esophagus also into into the inflammatory diseases space and i think one of the important things to maybe note also into some of the cancers which are not that much of a problem in the western world but they are in the eastern world so without doing a biology detour now there's there's two main forms of esophageal cancer one of them is more um, prevalent in the eastern world another one in the western world we're also doing some work on the one which is in the Eastern world, which is responsible for much higher mortality across the globe. But unfortunately, you know, mostly prevalent in, com- in, in countries which have a worse healthcare system, I think, than most Western countries. But I think it's also our responsibility to develop solutions for, for those countries that can be used in a cost-effective way. So I think three to five years, three years, we're going to be in the US and we're going to become one of the big players in our space there. And in five years' time, I think I should hopefully be able to say one of the world leading players and not just one of the Western world leading players. Great. I look forward to following you. This has been great. Marcel, your team at Cited is doing some really interesting work for GI cancers. I expect that the insights you shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? I'm pretty open to just connecting with people. So people can find me on LinkedIn. People can find a lot more about the company by just probably hitting Google and and going into news articles or our homepage. But yeah, if people want to want to have a chat about what we do and explore thoughts or opportunities, then I'm on LinkedIn and I'm not restrictive when it comes to accepting LinkedIn connections and replying to messages. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Heather, for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.